praise in this place. We bless and praise your name today in this place, Jesus. And Lord, we thank you for all of the wonderful things that you've done in our lives. When we look back, Lord, we see your love. We see your care. We see, Lord, how you brought us through many different stages of our lives. And as we reflect, Lord, we can see your goodness. Our lives haven't been perfect, far from it. There's been trouble along the way. And even situations that we would have never imagined occurring in our lives, they've come and gone. But Lord Jesus, you've remained faithful. Your steadfast love has never, ever failed us. We want to thank you today for your goodness. We want to thank you today, Lord Jesus, for your care. And Lord, we just pray today, again, Lord, that as we open our hearts again, that you would speak your word to us. Holy Spirit, I pray for your people. Oh, how you love us. Oh, how, Lord, how you love us. Lord, I pray today again, Holy Spirit, that you would awaken our hearts to understand the wonderful love that you have for us and the care that you show, the security that you bring and give. I pray for everybody here in this place that they would know that with assurance in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Come on, let's give Jesus a massive shout of praise. And why don't we show our appreciation to the musicians? Thank them. What a wonderful blessing they are to us. Well, I'm 49 years of age this month. Woo! 49 years of age. And you know, when thinking about my life, I can say one thing with confidence. Without Jesus Christ in it, my life would be a complete mess. An absolute disaster. Absolutely. And I've got 49 years to prove it. But you know what? As a 15-year-old boy, I reached out in a tent of all places, in a field. Jesus will meet you anywhere. In a tent, in a field, I cried out to God. Not with some kind of professional prayer that you hear people pray, but a broken, tear-stained prayer. Asking God to come into a lonely place in my life, my heart, my soul, the very center of my being. I didn't really need intellectual proof that there was a God and that there is a God. I didn't need intellectual or historical evidence that Jesus Christ exists. Of course, there is great historical evidence. Do you know there's more historical evidence for the existence of Jesus Christ than there is for Julius Caesar? There's incredible amounts of historical evidence that Jesus Christ walked this earth and he was everything he said he was. But I didn't need historical evidence or intellectual evidence as a 15-year-old boy. 
I needed real life experience that there was a Savior to call upon and meet me in my time of need and come into my sin-stained heart and life and meet me where I was. A broken prayer. Couple of words. I mean, what do you know when you're 15 years of age? You don't know how to pray. You know a lot of other choice words. But you certainly don't know how to approach God and a holy God at that. And I'm there in a field crying. Oh God, please will you come into this life of mine and you know what? I don't know how prayer works. I don't know how God does what he does. I don't know. I have no idea, but the greatest prayer that I ever prayed was the prayer for God to come into my heart, my lonely life, my empty soul. And you know what? That day in that field, in that tent, Jesus Christ came right into the center of my being. And again, I can't tell you scientifically, mathematically, how he does that. I can't. You say, well, I don't believe it. Well, I understand that because I didn't believe it either. But I'd come to a moment and a point in my life where I needed more than what I knew to be life as we know it. I needed peace even as a 15-year-old kid. I needed relief from anxiety and depression and all of these host of emotions that we so often get afflicted with. I needed to know if there was more beyond this world and more beyond this life than what I was seeing on TV and hearing around me from the parties that people were involved in. I needed real life. Jesus said, I've come that you might have life. That's wonderful news. Faith spoke about it this morning. He said it outrightly in a, in a very religious setting one day. I have come to preach good news to the poor. Oh, what greater news is there than for somebody that is full of anxiety and worry concerning their life to receive peace beyond understanding. What greater news is there to, to an impoverished life that is searching, that is empty, to find fulfillment at such a young age. And I cried to God, and I meant it. I meant it with all of my heart. Forgive me. I need to be clean. I need a wash on the inside. And you know what? Somehow, in a moment, in a moment, instantaneously, I didn't start shaking and foaming at the mouth and doing all kinds of weird things, but slowly and gently, a peace, a presence, now that I know is the Holy Spirit passed through me and gave me peace. The peace that I so anxiously longed for and searched for in all of the wrong places like many of you. That was when I was 15 years of age. Now I'm nearing 49 years of age. 34 years. 34 years. I mean, how do you maintain a life of following Jesus for 34 years? Well, the answer is you don't. He does it all for you. 
That's the amazing thing about it. I mean, if it was this kind of tightrope religion that you had to walk on very carefully, I would have failed after the first day, my friends. I'm telling you now, there's more unfaithfulness in me than you could ever imagine. I'm telling you now, there, there is nothing good within me other than the Savior, Jesus Christ. He has given me life. He's given you life. His goodness, His mercy, His grace towards us is beyond imagination. 34 years. and I'm, I, I mean, I'm amazed myself that I'm still here. I, I'm amazed myself when I wake up every day and I think, my God, it's another day. And, I, I, and I'm still here and God still loves me. God still accepts me and, and, and God still answers my prayers, which amazes me that in, in and of itself, that God even would love somebody like me after 34 years. But do you know what? He hasn't been putting up with me for 34 years. He's been embracing me and making me and shaping me and helping me like he has for you. He's amazing. He's wonderful. And it's all because, let me tell you something now, he loves us. He loves us. He makes He makes the poor rich. And by that, I don't mean that he, you know, offloads a a truckload of money into your bank account. Oh, he enriches you within. He enriches you. Blesses your life. And it amazes me that God is so good and God is so caring and God is so loving. Aren't you thankful for that? Aren't you thankful this morning that Jesus, Jesus, I'm telling you now, gave his everything. He gave his life. He gave his blood. He gave his everything for us. He really did. You may remember a week before last, we began to look at the book of Ephesians, the letter that Paul wrote to the Ephesians church. What an amazing letter it is. And We gave a simple outline around this book and we said that the book could be divided into two halves. If you want to look at it textually, the first three chapters deals with our position in Christ Jesus. That's what Paul was establishing. Paul gets this understanding of God's grace and the outcome of God's grace is that we have a glorious position in Christ Jesus. God's grace is incredible in what it does for us. He's the God of all grace, but the God of all grace has to give the riches of his grace and pour it upon our lives. And Paul sees this incredible picture and he he begins to paint this picture over the first three chapters of the letter to the Ephesians. He wants them to know that they're incredibly wealthy as a result of being the recipients of this grace from God in Christ. And then in the next three chapters, the final three chapters, he begins to outline how wealthy people can walk. He not only shows us our position in Christ as a result of God's grace, he begins to encourage us to practice this grace to outlive and to walk and manifest this grace that we've received as a result of being in Christ Jesus. It's an incredible letter. 
And when you look at the context and the, the background around this letter, the setting from which Paul wrote, he was under house arrest. This guy who loved the church, this guy that loved Jesus and continually just wrote and gave him himself to encourage others. He's actually under house arrest when he writes this letter and had been under house arrest for five years. He's kind of a political prisoner. The Jews wanted to get rid of him. The Romans didn't know what to do with him. And there was no charge that could stand against him. So he's under house arrest, under guard of a Roman soldier. And yet he's writing. If he can't proclaim it in the streets, if he can't proclaim it in their homes, he's busy writing his letters. And oh, the blessing of Paul's letters to us as the church. He writes. And you know, it's amazing when you look at this letter that Paul wrote and other letters, because from this house arrest, from this period where he was restricted for five years as a prisoner, He writes Ephesians, he writes Philippians, and he writes the letter of Philemon. And and in all of those letters, the man's spirit is so strong. Even though he's restricted, even though circumstances are pressing him down, he's so strong. He hardly makes any reference to this restrictive, limiting position of imprisonment that he's in. In fact, he doesn't refer refer to himself as a prisoner of the Jews. He doesn't say, I'm a a, a prisoner, a political prisoner of Rome. He rather refers to himself as a prisoner of Christ Jesus. A prisoner of Christ Jesus. He sees everything in Christ. He sees every circumstance, every situation under the sovereign hand of God. That there is no eventuality or situation about his life that God does not have his hand on. What is Paul's secret? How can Paul be so strong? Is it just because, you know, he's got an amazing temperament and an amazing intellectual ability? Is it because of his learning and his background and he's just one of those guys that's just got this tenacious character to get through anything? No, 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 no. That's not the secret of Paul's life. He gives us insight into the many secrets that has given him great strength by saying this, it's no longer I that live, but Christ that lives in me. What a privilege. What a privilege to see Christ living in you. What a wonder. That is a miracle in itself. To hear yourself speaking differently, thinking differently acting differently and you come to the realization that this is not you it's Christ Paul had that understanding and that realization it is no longer I he says that live but Christ that lives in me one of the secrets that Paul had that gave him tremendous strength to face anything and go through anything and be victorious on the other end of all of the situations of hostility that he faced, I believe, is found in verse 6 of Ephesians chapter 1. And we looked at that. Let me, let me read it to you again. 
And he's making a remark about God's wonderful grace, God's glorious grace. That's the phrase that he uses. God's glorious grace. He says, to the praise of his glorious grace. He's talking about our acceptance in the beloved. By which he has made us accepted in the beloved. Paul accepted that he had been made accepted. Paul accepted it. Paul embraced it. Paul understood all of the work and the accomplishments that Christ had achieved through his death, burial, and resurrection. And as he, as he thought about that, and as he thought about the glory of God's grace in it all towards us who believe, he accepted that the consequences of that is that we have been made accepted in the beloved. It's the outworking of God's grace. It's undeserved. It's unmerited. It is unearned. This is a gift. In fact, later in Ephesians, Paul said this. He said, by grace you've been saved, didn't he? He said, by grace, you've been saved through faith. And this is not a work from yourselves. It's the free gift of God to you. Free gift. Not earned, certainly. Never deserved. It's unmerited. It's God's goodness because he loves us, because he sees the conditions of our lives without him. And he steps in by his grace and he steps in by his love, and he lavishes it upon us, and he pours it, and he pours it over us, and we find ourselves in Christ, and as a result of being in Christ, we are made, we are made acceptable in the beloved. That means when God looks at you, there is not a moment, and there will never ever be a moment for all time, and all eternity, where God will question your acceptance. God will never question your acceptance before Him. God will never ever have a second thought. God will never ever in His mind consider that, consider that He's made a mistake. He will never ever give consideration to any other conclusion other than accepted in the Beloved. When he looks at you, you are accepted. There is never a moment in the future. There is never a moment that can arise from our ugly past that can, that can cause God to have a second opinion about your life or my life forevermore. You are accepted. Paul didn't say he's making you acceptable. That would implicate that this is a process. That would imply that the work isn't finished. The work isn't complete. There's still some more for Jesus to do. If Paul had said, he was very clear about the words that he used and the phrases that he gave to the church. If Paul had said, you know, God is making, he's making you acceptable in the beloved. I mean, to be honest with you, when you're poor and wretched like we are, you'd accept anything, wouldn't you? You'd just accept that. Okay, I'll take anything. Oh, no. 
It's far greater than that. It's far higher than that. That's why Paul calls it, it, that's why Paul tells us it's the result of God's glorious grace. He said, you've been made. You've been made acceptable in the beloved. This is a once and for all done deal. The work that Christ has accomplished in his death, burial, and resurrection is complete. And that is why Jesus on the cross before them all cried, it is finished. It is finished. It is over the work. And he was referring not only to a demonic host that he was defeating in the heavenlies. He was not only referring to judgment, having been met fully within himself as God rained down his, his vengeance for our sin upon him. He was also referring to the finished work regarding our lives in our acceptance before a holy God. You can go into the presence of God 24-7 without any condemnation, without any guilt, without any shame. You can look God in the eye, my friend, and confidently and boldly stand before Him, before the throne of grace, before the throne of mercy, to obtain help. That's the level of your acceptance. That's the degree that Jesus went to in perfecting our position before God. Oh, it's the result of his glorious grace, Paul says. My God is awesome. You may come here this morning and you may say, well, I've got evidence contrary to that. Yeah, we all have. I've got evidence to support that I can't be accepted. Yeah, that's right. We all have. Let's bring it out. Let's put it on the table. And God will sit the other side of the table and he will bring his evidence out. He will bring his evidence to the table to support his position. We can support our position quite well, I'm sure, referring to times, dates, and places where we sinned, where we failed, where, where, where we still feel guilty over. We can, we can support it with good evidence, but God comes to the table with a different type of evidence. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. If you want some evidence that substantiates the position that Paul takes in Ephesians chapter 1, where he says, you and I have been made accepted in the beloved. If you want evidence... If you want evidence from God, God will substantiate and support all of his statements by what Jesus has done on the cross. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For he, talking about God, made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become, or in other translations it says, that we might be made the righteousness of God. In him, do you know what? The very righteousness, the very holiness, the very attributes of God have been imputed to you and I as a result of what Jesus has done. John Newton said this, it's amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me, I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now 
I see John Newton was a young man. And by his own admission, he says, I was the vilest of the vile, worse than any sinners on the ship. He was a slave trader. And he was on his way back, on a voyage back from Africa. The boat was full of slaves and they hit a tremendous storm off the coast of Ireland. And the ship began to break apart. And this hardened young man who'd lived to the full, who was a vile man by his own admission, begins to get concerned, especially when they hit a rock and there was a hole in the hull. Water started to pour in, and this young man began to cry out to God. And mysteriously, mysteriously, the ship, the ship was sinking. Mysteriously, cargo moved over the hole in the hull, blocking it up, and they got safely to land. Mysteriously. It wasn't a professional prayer that God heard when John Newton cried out for mercy. It wasn't, you know, lines from a prayer book that he recited to God. The conditions of salvation for him were terrific. The conditions for him, for this man, was that he was at the point of death, about to meet his maker, about to leave this earth. And he cries to God and suddenly he's given another chance. And later he writes, as a man now that's found the grace of God in his heart, not just intellectually in his head, not just understanding historically that Jesus was who he says he was, but now deep now in the soul of his life, he finds this amazing grace. It defies a mathematical formula. It defies a scientific statement. It comes into God's love, God's grace comes into our lives in the most unexpected ways, and it changes us forever. And that was the testimony of that man that, that wrote those amazing words. Amazing grace. It is amazing grace. But it's more than amazing grace. It's glorious grace, Paul calls it. Glorious. Why? Because it takes us and restores us back to the position that God intended for each and every one of our lives. And that is to have him at the center of it. Not to make us church attendees. And that, it's what, please, I'm not underplaying our meeting today. Because it's together with all the saints that we comprehend the wonders of God's love. It's in this togetherness. We must never think, oh, do you know what? I'm just staying in bed this morning. No, we've prioritized our time together. And as a result of our time together, together with all the saints, we've had another fresh sense of his presence, of aspects of his goodness, whilst we've been singing and whilst we've been just waiting on him because we prioritize to be here. But, you know, it's not just about our meeting together. It's about him meeting us. 
Maybe in a tent in a field. Maybe on a bus. Maybe in a car. Maybe while you're walking down a road. It can be anywhere. His love pursues us. And even though we spurn it, I had many times, many, many situations, even in my young life, where I just felt it's like, it's like this little knock on the door. Come on, Dave. Love you. Just want to come in. And I spurned it, and I ignored it, and I ridiculed it. And the messengers that came to me, other young people, I laughed at, but secretly and deeply, my heart longed, but my pride, even as a kid, dug its heels in and said, no, I know better. But his goodness brings you to that moment. Maybe that moment today is here in this place for you. I pray it is. My prayer is that you would open your heart in an unrestricted way and say, oh, Jesus, here I am. Be my Savior. That's my prayer. But Paul sees this wonderful, beautiful place that we've all been granted. We're accepted. We've been made acceptable in the beloved. This is not, this is not something that's being outworked. This has been done. This has been done. Now, our sanctification, that's progressive. Being made holy, that's a work of the Holy Spirit. But as far as our acceptance, I'm telling you now, it's a done deal. It's a done deal because of what Jesus has done. Absolutely. And then in Romans, you know, you bring your evidence to the table. You say that, you know, I can't be accepted because of what I've done and who I am and where I've been. God brings his evidence to the table. Romans 8, 31 to verse 34. Paul says this, what should we say then to these things? If God is for us. Now that should wake some of us up this morning. Do you know God's for you? He's for you. We're in a world that says God's against you. Come this way. Now God's not against you. God's for you. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him freely give us all things? Listen to this. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. It is he, who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God and also makes intercession for us. Who can bring a charge against you? You say, well, I could bring a lot of charges against myself. I know. But you know what? You have got no right. You have got no right to bring any charge against yourself whom God has acquitted, whom God has justified. There is no charge to be laid against your life. Do you know what? The, I think that's a Guns N' Roses. Is that Guns N' Roses? Come on. Awesome. We like a bit of guns on a Sunday morning. <laughs> oh, I tell you what, if I had long hair, I'd be like, ah, 
I got to watch my neck, right? I got to watch my neck because it hurts. But there's nothing wrong with a bit of guns in church on a Sunday morning, Les. <laughs> You're a secret rocker as well. Tell you now. But even with guns and roses on a Sunday morning, we're still accepted. Come on, church. I love it. Do you know what? Les is in our Connect group. And uh, do you know, we, me and Faye have been talking about this loads, Les. He was such a blessing to us the other night. Talking. We were talking on the, on the you know, the stories book. And um, Lee and Claire were just um, reading the stories, which was brilliant. And Les brings his Bible and he begins to share and he begins to, you know, just, just encourage us all. And it was, um, and you know, everybody was pitching in then, but he was such a blessing. So even though he likes Guns N' Roses, he's still a blessing. <laughs> Next time, just play it a bit louder, Les. We like it. We got no problem. Right? Hey, there you go. Kane's still here. Listen, we're all still here. Because when you give yourself a round of applause, we got through another week. We made it. We did it. But you know, we're accepted. We're accepted in the beloved. As we come to a close, maybe I can try and illustrate God's grace like this. You know, we've heard phrases like, when it comes to God's grace, we've heard phrases like, it's unmerited favor. It is unmerited because we haven't done anything to merit it. Quite the, you know, on the contrary, we've, we've, we've done everything not to deserve it. It's unmerited favor. It's certainly undeserved, isn't it? It's undeserved. And it's unearned. You can't earn your way to God. We try to we, 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 we try to clean our act up. Do you know what? We can't clean our act up. And I realized that as a 15-year-old kid when I just cried out a pitiful prayer to God. But he heard that prayer. And from that moment, from that point on, 34 years have come and gone. And he's still got hold of me, still helping me, still bringing me through. There's an amazing story in English history that illustrates the message of grace in a wonderful way. In 1586, a woman set out to assassinate Queen Elizabeth I. And she disguised herself as a page boy. And she hid one night in the queen's room in, in, in a wardrobe where all of her gowns were kept. But she didn't realize that the queen's aides every night search the rooms that the queen would go into. So on this particular night, as usual, her aides went through the room and they found this woman with dagger in hand, ready to murder the queen at a given moment. They took the dagger away and they brought the woman before the queen, threw her on the floor. This woman's fate hung in the balance. She knew that there was no hope for her there was no way forward. There was no way out. She'd been caught red-handed right in the middle of the crime that she was about to commit. And now she waited for judgment. 
And as she realized that there was no hope for her, she began to cry and beg for mercy and beg for compassion from the queen. Queen Elizabeth I calmly and coolly looked upon her in a pitiful state and said these words, which are interesting. If I show you grace, what promise will you make for the future? If I show you grace, what promise will you give to me in relation to the future? It's a good question. It's a justifiable question. The woman's asking for compassion. The woman's asking for mercy. And in response to that cry, in response to that plea, Queen Elizabeth I asks the question, if I show you grace, what promise will you give to me? What promise will you make for the future? Now, this is an amazing answer from a woman in a pitiful state facing sentence and judgment. The woman looked up and quietly responded, grace that has conditions, grace that is bound and fettered by precautions is no grace at all. Queen Elizabeth caught that woman's correcting words and said, you're right. You're right. I extend my grace to you without precondition, without any precaution, and without any necessary promise coming from you to guarantee my grace. I extend my grace to you in an unmerited, in an unearned, in an undeserved manner. You are free to go. Do you know history records, Brit British history records that there was no more devoted follower to Queen Elizabeth than that woman that had set out that night to assassinate her and murder her. What had happened? Grace undeserved, grace unmerited, grace unearned had transformed a murderer into a loving, loyal devotee, a servant. And that's what grace does. God doesn't demand any promises from you and I before He lavishes His love upon us. God doesn't stand, you know, toe-to-toe -to -toe with us and say, right, these are the preconditions that you have to fulfill in the future in order to be the recipients of this glorious grace, in order for you to be made acceptable in the beloved. I have to have these preconditions and these requirements and these promises fulfilled. If there's any air airing in, the promise in the preconditions that I prescribe, then you'll no longer retain your position. But no, that is not the case. God requires no 
promise from us? We couldn't make it anyway. Because according to Ephesians 2, Paul says, when he found us, we were dead in our trespasses and sins, unable to give any promise, unable to fulfill any prescribed condition. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love, made us alive, raised us up together with Christ and made us made us sit in heavenly places in him and this is the glory of his grace that he requires no promise from you my friend he requires no preconditions to be met he simply requires the same trust that you extended to the chair that you sit on this morning The same trust that you gave to that chair under you that you believed would hold your weight the moment that you sat on it. The same trust, the same faith that you extend every day to different elements of your life and you give it so unreservedly and you take for granted the the trust that you give to the many things around you in order to take you through your life. He requires that same trust. That's all he requires. Not the great announcement of promises. Not the great announcement of conditions that you will meet. Just simple trust. Jesus I call upon your name. The Bible says, today, today is the day of salvation. Today, right now, today is the day where this glorious grace can be loaded into your life like, like it was loaded into my life and many other lives across this room. Today is the day where you can find your place of acceptance in the beloved. Simple trust. The Bible says, if you call, if, if, if you call on the name of the Lord, you shall be saved. Glorious grace will be extended to you. Salvation will be your portion. Peace Everlasting peace and joy will be upon you. And it's a real place and a position in Christ. I'm going to pray in a moment. And I'm going to give you the same opportunity that was given me as a 15-year-old kid. Listen, nobody twisted my arm behind my back. I didn't turn up in that tent demanding historical evidence, demanding proof. And there's good proof. There's, there's many people that do require proof. And they're given that proof. And you know what? Again, the, the, the same results, they, they fall under the wonderful blessing of grace. Thomas needed proof. He was a disciple. He needed intellectual proof physical proof, physical evidence. So if you're here this morning and you need proof, historical evidence, and an intellectual conclusion 
for your heart to settle with this faith, this saving grace. That's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. Thomas, the disciple, needed that, and Jesus gave him it. Come here, Thomas. Put your fingers in those holes. Oh, that's proof. Put your hand in this side. But today you may, like me, I didn't need it. I just, my God, I tell you now, I've got enough evidence going on inside me to know that I need peace. I need, there's a vacuum, a God-shaped vacuum inside me that I need filling. Jesus, come into my heart. Broken prayer. Didn't even really know who Jesus was. And he came in and he saved me. I'm going to pray right now. And maybe, maybe today, you're going to invite Jesus into your heart. Place your trust in him. I'm going to pray just to help you. Maybe you've already reached out. Oh, God, help me. Jesus, be my Savior. You, you've prayed that. You've already done it. You don't even need me to say it. That's fine. But for others, maybe you just want somebody to help you in prayer. I'm going to just pray a very simple prayer. And you're going to pray that prayer. And Jesus, the Prince of Peace, is going to come in. And His glorious grace is going to be extended to you. Pray this prayer. Say this. Quietly in your heart. Jesus, I ask you right now to forgive me of my sin. I call on your name today. Jesus, save me. Come into my heart. I open it to you. Amen.